book contains the lessons from those and other mistakes and successes of many companies. It explores the loves of clients shaped and altered by some significant social changes. I have loved exploring these ideas and hope you will find insight, inspiration, and many tools that will help you grow and love doing it. How to Draw Your Blueprints First, forget benchmarking. It only reveals what others do, which rarely is enough to satisfy, much less delight, today's clients. And forget studying critical success factors, even though the Japanese built an apparent economic dynasty by focusing on them. That dynasty was merely apparent because their foundation question was flawed. Their question, what has made companies in our industry successful, leads you to the old answers, which leads you to copy and refine the old answers instead of innovating new ones. The Japanese dynasty's preferred copy and refinement method was to improve product quality and build at lower cost, two huge American weaknesses at that time. This resulted in $700 VCRs that could be sold profitably for $400 and gave the Japanese a huge but temporary advantage. Because this approach was a simple refinement of the critical success factors in the electronics industries, American companies were able to copy the Japanese formula quickly by tightening quality control and outsourcing their labor to lower-wage countries. And never mind what clients say they want. No client ever asked for ATMs, negotiable certificates of deposit, heated car seats, traveler's checks, Disneyland, Cirque du Soleil, or Siegfried and Roy. And no one, outside perhaps a few thousand techies, ever asked for a home computer. Clients never said they wanted any of those things. Their creator simply created them, sensing that people would love them. The extraordinary successes, Federal Express, Lion King the Play, and the Four Seasons Hotels as three enormous examples, and Powell's Bookstores, Creative Kid Stuff, and Egan Schrager's Hotels as relatively small ones, never benchmarked, studied critical success factors, or polled prospects on what they might want. Instead, each of these companies asked the same question, what would people love? Ask that question, too. Ask, and keep asking yourself, what would people love? The next time you ponder your strategy, ask, if I ran a competing firm, how would I beat ours? Which weakness would I attack? What would I do to distinguish this new firm and seize business from our current one? Then do this. Eliminate that weakness. It is your soft underbelly the reason you are losing some business. Then, build that distinguishing strength before someone else starts doing it. Always ask, how would I beat us? And whenever you consider your business's next step, ask, if we were starting this business from scratch today, what would we do differently? And then, do that. Most people assume that business plans will tell them what to do. Few businesses, however, follow their plans. Things change, assumptions change, and plans change with them, as they should. Yet businesses still plan. Why? Because the value of planning is not the plan, but in the planning. 
Planning teaches you and your colleagues about your business, your market, your customers, and each other. So keep planning. As you implement your plan, your prospects and clients will react, and their reactions will teach you more. Among other things, their reactions, carefully observed, will reveal what clients want and love. Nike's success from its awkward beginnings in Bill Bowerman's kitchen near Eugene, Oregon, to its 400-pound gorilla status today, can be traced to a source, the White Hot Center. Nike began when Phil Knight no longer felt content with distributing America's then-dominant running shoe, the minimalist, Japanese-made Tiger. He and Oregon track coach Bill Bowerman collaborated to make a new shoe, which they named quickly after the Greek goddess of victory. In choosing to partner with Bowerman, Knight went straight to the white-hot center of American running. Bowerman and Villanova's Jumbo Elliott were American running's gurus and living legends and the coaches of many American Olympians, particularly distance runners. With Bowerman came the other man at the white-hot center of America's running industry, Steve Prefontaine, America's fastest and most charismatic runner in every event from two miles to 5,000 meters, a figure so large that Hollywood later would make not one movie, but two, about his life. With Bowerman designing the shoes and pre-wearing them, Nike quickly became the most visible symbol and name in American running in the early 1970s. Then, Nike struck gold in an unexpected place, Germany. Frank Shorter's unprecedented and widely watched triumph in the 1972 Olympic